You may have a seat. I'm going to share with you the scripture we are going to be looking at this morning. We are in Acts chapter 13. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. So last week, we talked about the church in Antioch. Antioch was, at that time, the third most important, the third most populous city in the Roman Empire. And what happened was there were a lot of believers in Jerusalem in Jesus after he had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. They were starting to spread in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem and mainly to Jews. But there were some people that went up to Antioch and they were some of the first people to not talk just to Jews or to people familiar with the Jewish faith, which would have given them some familiarity with this God that Jesus is. Um, but they started talking to the pagan people, to the people that had no clue, the people that were part of the Roman Empire that, that wouldn't have had categories for it. And it says, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And then as a result, the, the people came from Jerusalem, some, uh, Barnabas came from Jerusalem, and even more people were brought to the Lord. And then Saul came, and, and great numbers of people were taught. And so this became a church that was reflecting of the city, all kinds of different cultures and ethnicities, all kinds of different backgrounds. And it's the first place where they're called Christians, little Christ, people that are like Christ, like Jesus. That's, they had become like that. They were generous. Uh, they had given away money even when it should have been time maybe for them to save up money. That reflects who they are. And they become the church to which all kinds of people in the Mediterranean region, world, Roman Empire, were reached. It started with this church. And the story that Aubrey just read is the story of its beginnings. They had an idea, a vision, we are going to go to places where nobody knows Jesus. 
We're gonna, but nobody knows. Nobody knows about him. Many of people don't even know about, about God. There are some Jewish people, but nobody knows. And we're going to somehow go and we're going to keep going. And it starts here. And from our perspective, that looks like, well, yeah, that's good. That's a good mission project. Good, good job. But from their perspective, that, this is crazy. Rome is at its height of power. There, there is, this is just a little fledgling group. How are they going to come to people in this Roman culture in, with all their impressive things and talk about Jesus? Well, they believe Jesus is real. Jesus is God. And so they're just going to obey and do it. So we're going to look at that story. And what we're going to do is I'm going to start by just sharing for a few minutes about the, the beginnings of it and make some comments that we can apply from the beginnings of it, which is a passage we've looked at a couple times already this winter. And then we're going to get to this story of the first place they go and what happens there, and we're going to apply that. So in Acts chapter 13, 2, it says, While they, and the they is the leadership team of the Antioch church, prophets and teachers, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay, so how does this happen? There, there is a communication that happens. Somehow they hear, you're supposed to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them. Now this makes me think that they've called them, they already had in their mind, like this is what they think they're supposed to do. But again, I've been saying, this is crazy. Go where? Go how? How does this happen? What, 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 how does this even work? But they've got a sense they're supposed to go to places where no one's gone before. And so they get the confirmation coming probably from some of the prophets the Spirit says. I don't know if it's audible voice. I don't know how it was, but probably it got put on somebody else's heart. You're supposed to do this, and it was confirmation of what they already had in their own hearts. Now, in reading this passage again and reading some commentaries, F.F. Bruce, this old um, um, commentary or theologian that's written in a ton of the commentaries, and he said this, and it just struck me, there are... Indications that New Testament Christians were especially sensitive to the Spirit's communication during fasting. He, he, he's not a charismatic kind of guy, but he says we need to pay special attention to the fact that fasting is a way when we are, it helps us to hear the Lord. There's an expectancy to hear. They were worshiping and fasting. Worship does that as well. We just did more music, worship with music than we normally do on a front end. And what can happen, our minds wander, and then they come back, and we're singing, and then we're thinking about something else. But what happens is the more that we're in this context of worship, the more our thoughts are getting influenced by God. Not perfectly, not without distraction, but more, and maybe he's even communicating to us in the midst of that. So you put fasting and worship together, and this message comes for something that's a really important thing, like we're gonna, you're going to go do what looks impossible. Next verse, verse 3, it says... Um, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so again, fasting comes up. When we're doing fasting, it's fasting, not eating food for a period of time for spiritual purposes. And that's something we don't do. We don't eat. But it always is combined with something we do, like worship or pray or study scripture or something we put in. And they recognize, again, these two are going to need guidance these two are going to need God's hand to be with them. God to show up. This will not work without God. It will not work without his spirit. And so they fast some more and they pray. Now, I bring this up because for those of you who've been with us for, for the last several months, 
In the beginning of 2021, we're doing an initiative, Fast Forward. We're trying to fast from food, learn to fast, maybe once a week, maybe one meal, maybe 24 hours, where we don't eat for a period of time, and then we pray. And we've got this, this Padlet uh, message board where you can sign up, and we, um, you can get there through the website. Uh, and so anyway, we've had, you, give, you use your fasting handle. So if you go there, there's made-up names. Some of them are funny. Some of them are clever. But, but we've had a number of people. We've had every day since we started, January 3rd, every day people have fasted. Almost every day, multiple people, according to that, have been fasting. I've had, last week I had two people, and last week or two, two people come up to me and just, you know, one of them said, you know, just so you know, I don't even know how to get to that thing. I don't do that kind of thing, but I've been fasting every week. And so if that's you, I, I would say, if you don't know how to get there, can you let our office know? They'll make up a name, you make up a name, put it on there. Why? The initiative is to go all the way until Easter, that we have people fasting every day. And for that to happen, it takes encouragement. When you start to feel like, well, I'm one of the only... And so we put these names that we know, okay, we're in this together. Someone else, you know, I just keep forgetting to put my name. It's not the biggest deal in the world, but it does encourage us to see who's fast, that people are fasting and what people are getting out of fasting. Okay? The other thing I wanted to mention and I wasn't even going to bring up fasting, to be honest, at the beginning of this. But I have had people bringing up fasting to me. And so multiple people in the last week, one I think was maybe two days ago, have communicated to me, hey, I haven't fasted before. One of, one of them, the text said, I just want you to know that um, when we heard you say fasting accomplishes things or opens up things in the spiritual realm that, that no other practices seem to do, we knew we were supposed to start to do this. We haven't done it before. And they, the, what we have learned and seen since we started doing this is incredible. That's what they're saying to me. So I think I just want to keep encouraged because it's for the long haul. And it's in the passage this week, so I'm sneaking it in one, la one more time for a little while. But I just, if you haven't done it yet, try it at some point. Let's do this together. It is good for us. What was it good for for them? Well, they, they had guidance from the Lord. They heard from the Lord, individually and as a community. And then two people were empowered to do what they could not do in human strength, what would be completely impossible on their own. So we are trying to be part of that as well. Now, what happens next? Verse 4, the two of them, this is Barnabas and Saul, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Now, as they go, it says the Spirit sent them. They prayed that the Spirit would go with them. I mean, they needed the Spirit of God. That doesn't mean you turn off your brains and you just like, well, well however the wind blows and the Spirit leads me and in the moment I'll figure everything out. They were strategic. They want to go, I, we think... We think even maybe from this point, they may have had thoughts, eventually they want to get all the way to Rome, which is a long way away, which is a, a daunting place to go. They start with Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean, kind of part of Greece, like near Greece. So they start with Cyprus. That is where Barnabas is from. They're going to go to parts unknown. They're going to go places they've never been before, but they start with a place where one of them knows. They get to the east coast of that island, they sail there, and eventually they work their way all the way across the island. The other thing we see here is that they start in the synagogues. 
the synagogues, with the Jewish people, with people would have part of the, what we call the Old Testament, they would have that part of the Bible. And they can explain these things that where we say a Messiah is coming. See, this is Jesus. He came. This is how it's pointing to him. They start there. They start with even people that weren't Jewish yet. And frankly, if I was a male at that time, I'd be very hesitant to be Jewish because to be Jewish, if you weren't Jewish, was to mean to have a procedure done. So they were, they were called the God-fearing ones. You know, I think that sounds like a safer camp to me. God-fearing ones, they were around. And so it, you're getting some people. And as he goes through, the, some people that already have some exposure and knowledge of the living God. So as he goes, what you'll see is this is the normal pattern. Start with the Jewish people. Start in the synagogues. Start with the God-fearers. But they don't just stay there. They move on to people who have no background with the living God. So they make their way all the way across. Here it is, verse 6. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. They met, there they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, how did, I, how did you say it, Aubrey? I'm sure you said it right. You leave? Do you not even come to my sermons? <laughs> Elymas? Whatever his name is. I don't even know why I stopped there. It's really not that important. That's what his name, the important thing is his name means sorcerer. Opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at this guy, and said, we'll get to that in a moment. I want us to zero in on these characters for a little bit. So the first one is Sergius Paulus, a Roman proconsul. This meant he was in charge of the island. He was who Rome put in charge of the island. We know about him from history besides the Bible. There's other writings we have about this guy. He was originally stationed in Rome. He was, I think, a senator in Rome. The fact that he's, he's a big deal. He's been around, he knew Caesar Augustus. He's been around the most powerful people in the world. He became one of the most powerful people in the world. He is the most powerful person on this island. How are you going to convince this guy? Seen it all, can have it all. He's, he's, how are you going to convince this guy to now listen to me, Jewish guy, back here in Palestine, know this guy, he got executed you know, in the ways that, like, the most horrible way, that's who you should be paying attention to. How are you going to convince him? Well, the thing is, Sergius Paulus is a human being. Human beings have souls. Souls long for God, know they need God, are open to God, are hungry for God. And so, when God is being talked about, all of a sudden, he wants to hear the word of God, it says. He is hungry for communication from the real God. It doesn't matter. If you get to the most important places in the world, it just what you find is it's still empty without God. So he is hungry for God. Now the next characters, Barnabas and Saul, who is also called Paul. This passage starts, opens up a whole new direction for the rest of the book of Acts. And we recognize that through the way it talks about Barnabas and Saul. So up until this point, it's always Barnabas first and then Saul. And it is right here too, Barnabas and Saul. And when they do the leadership team, it is Barnabas, they do three more, and then Saul. 
Barnabas is the leader at this point. Barnabas is the one who has taken Saul under his wing at this point. From here on out, it will always be Paul and Barnabas. Paul will be first. Paul will be the leader. Paul, the one who has the heart to go see Jesus get spread everywhere, he becomes the leader. And it's Paul now. From here on out, we don't hear him as Saul. He is Paul. Why is that? Well, Saul was his Jewish name. If you're in Hebrew cir- circles, that's, you're, you're going to be known by Saul. That's a name they would recognize. If you're talking to Greek people, to people in the Roman Empire, to people, you're going to want the Greek Roman Latin name, Paul. And so he's always referred to as Paul. His heart is to go to those outsiders, the people that don't already know the living God. He becomes the primary person to go to people outside. And so now he's always referred to in the story as Paul. Okay? And then this last character, Bar-Jesus, Elimus, sorcerer. Paul's about to call him the child of the devil. So this guy is Jewish. So this guy, and now I don't, clearly by this point not a practicing Jew so much, but he has the background. He has a sense of who God is, who the living God is, and yet he has become a sorcerer. He has gotten into spiritual things that are separate from God. Now Bar-Jesus would probably be, Jewish name, Bar-Yeshua. Bar-Yeshua, Joshua. Joshua and Jesus are the same in Hebrew. Yeshua, that's the same name. Bar is son of. He's the son of Joshua, son of Yeshua, son of Jesus. He's the son of God, Jesus, who is God, and Paul calls him child of the devil. He's got an identity that could be, a trajectory that could be a child of God, resembles God, is like Jesus. And right now he's living out an identity that is like the devil. Let's look at that. Verse 10. You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So before this description, what we know about Bar-Jesus is that while Sergius Paulus is eager to hear about God, eager to know about God, and and, uh, Barnabas and Saul are about to tell him about that, Bar-Jesus is trying to get in the way. He's trying to stop it. He doesn't want it to happen. He doesn't want to lose his influence. He's got spiritual powers, too, that he's operating with, but he knows there's something powerful about talking about Jesus, and he doesn't want it. He doesn't want to lose his spot. He doesn't want to lose his influence. So what we hear about him is that um, he's an enemy of everything that's right. He never stops perverting the right ways of the Lord. He isn't wanting to do what is right. I think it's funny, deceit and trickery. Like, okay, deceit, okay, I get that. He's deceptive and he's trickery. I mean, that feels like something I don't struggle with. You know, maybe there's, I used to know a few card tricks. In fact, I even had a trick deck of cards, you know, marked deck of cards in college. I only used it once when playing for money. 
And it wasn't, it wasn't uh, so much that I like, had this conviction of like, oh, that's really wrong to be taking these guys' money. Um, but it was that like, if anyone ever found out that I have a Mark of cards, I'd be in big trouble. So uh, we, we stopped that. But anyway, I mean, that feels like trickery. Probably a better word would be manipulation. Getting someone to do what you want to do for you, not what's good for them, but what's good for you. And we, if we ha- recognize it, sometimes can see, we manipulate, most of us manipulate often. It's just the way we manipulate is different. Most of us are manipulating. How do I get you to do what I want? Regardless of if it's good for you, regardless if it's right, is it good for me right now? And he's full of these things. So now there's a little progression. If you can get the next slides, Jill. The first one is, so even though Bar-Jesus knew what was right, probably, he was, he was part of a background that gave a framework of right and wrong according to the Lord, he didn't do what was right. And after not doing what is right, now he's influencing others. He's manipulating so that other people don't do what's right. And when you keep doing that, at some point, you don't even see that you're not doing right. It feels right. It feels normal. It feels natural. That is the path that all of us can easily get on. And Saul's response, Paul's response, is to, to, like, you're blind. Wow. In the name of Jesus. Okay. That's love. I mean, that doesn't feel very loving. The Lord's hand is against you. But if you've been following along with this series, you'll know that a couple weeks ago we talked about Saul's own conversion, how he thought he was doing what was right. He was a religious guy. Now, he's different than Bar-Jesus because he's really trying to follow God. Bar-Jesus isn't. He's just trying to get influence in the, in the powerful circles of the day. But he's really following God, but what he doesn't recognize is he has become an enemy of God, an enemy of Jesus. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus says. And he, he thinks he's doing right, but he can't see that his anger that his hatred, that his prejudice, that there's all these things that are underneath the surface, so he's not doing what's right. And what happens? He can't see. Like physically, he goes blind. And after he goes blind, it's only while going blind that he starts to see the way he's been living, what has been wrong, who God really is. So he, that was his pattern. And now, when he strikes this person blind, one result of that is this guy is no longer interfering with Sergius Paulus's hunger for hearing the word of God, knowing God, communication with God. He's not interfering anymore. But the other thing that Paul might be doing is giving Bar-Jesus a chance to have the same kind of conversion he had. That maybe by not being able to physically see for a while, and there's nothing you can do about that, you just know you can't see for a while, it's his chance to see he's not doing right, he's not following the Lord, he can bring it back into alignment. Verse 12, last one. When the proconsul saw what happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. He was amazed at the teaching. What's the teaching? Well, next week, the... Um, we go through a passage where he spells it out, what Paul is teaching. And Paul is teaching, it's funny, in this passage he starts with, with the, who's getting raised, that 
that Jesus defeated death, that we get raised from the death, that we have hope after death, that our bodies won't decay, and then also that Jesus forgives our sins. Through his death and cross, he forgives our sins. He sets us free from sin. So that's the teaching. But he saw it. What did he see? He saw this guy who was very influential, very powerful, very impressive, go blind at the name of Jesus. And he believed. And history tells us not so much about him being a Christian, not sure they even had the categories for that then, but about his kids. There's things about his kids, and they were Christians. So we get the result of, of Sergius Paulus, but the writer does not. So what happens to the other guy, the sorcerer? Does he, is it like Paul? Does he ever see again? Does he ever become a believer? We don't get the answer. Sometimes the writers of the Bible, I think, do that on purpose. They, they don't communicate something, and so we're left with, so what's going to happen? Because it's trying to get us in the story. Are we, you, and, you or I, are we a child of Jesus or a child of the devil? Are we going to do the right things, follow the right ways of the Lord, or are we going to not? Are we going to manipulate? Are we going to deceive? Are we going to grab for what's best for us in the moment, so we think? What, it leaves you with just like, what's going to happen? Which is kind of an invitation to say, which way are you going to go? Which way are you going to follow? I don't think any of us like, consciously set out to be like, well, I want to be a child of the devil. That's my goal. But is it possible that we can not do the right things for a while? That we can even be causing other people to not do the right things? That we can do that and not even see it? And then what if there's an interruption that comes into our life which could be used to help us see more clearly and choose what's right? A couple days ago, a few days ago, uh, this week sometime, we pull out and get down the road, and as we're getting down the road, Everett, my son, says to me, Dad, how do you know what the, or what's the speed limit right here? I said, oh, it's 55. How do you know that? I said, well, I mean, I've just driven this road enough, there's a sign back there, there's a sign up there, it's, it's 55. He said, oh, you're going 60. <laughs> I said, well, yeah, he said, well, right, you're going 60, right? I said, well, I'm going about 55. <laughs> so, you know, let's change the subject. We go, we go on. But a few minutes later, he says, uh, Dad, you're going, you're going 70. You're going more than 70 now. I said, well, it's 65 now. And he said, so why aren't you going 65? He probably doesn't remember what I said because probably, I don't remember what I said. I think, I think what I did was I started to talk and then just mumbled and trailed off. You know, I said, well, you know, someday you'll be older and know when to break the law. <laughs> so anyway... I didn't say that, but, you know, that's really what went through my mind, like, because I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I didn't, what is the right answer? So the next morning, I have a meeting in Pella, and I'm driving Idaho Road, and any of you that know Idaho Road, you start at 55, and then it slows down, and then it slows down some more until you get to going down a hill at 35, Right? But it feels, the whole time feels like it should be the same speed. There isn't like a, any indication that like now I should be slowing down. It just, it is. 
So I know this, so I started slowing down, you know, partway through when it got to 45 or whatever, but the hill, I mean, you have to hit the brakes to be going 30. You have practically have to be in reverse to be going 30 or 35 when you're going down the hill on that, that spot. So I wasn't in a hurry, and I, w- I just wasn't paying attention, and I, I must have sped back up, and I see a police officer driving up, and I look down, and I'm going 50, and I mean, I slow down. By the time he gets to me, I'm, I'm going 35, but when I see, the, I see the brake lights, I didn't even wait for him to turn around. I just pulled over. I'm like, I'm dead. I'm, I'm, it's me. He's got me. So he comes up, and he, you know, I, I give him my registration. I realize my wallet, it's in my backpack. My backpack's in the back seat. So can I get that? Yeah, go ahead. I, for, I, I must have left my wallet at home. I'm sorry, I, left my, I guess I left my wallet at home. That's okay. Well, can I get your insurance? Immediately, my mind goes to those insurance cards sitting on my desk that I've intended to put on for two weeks into my glove compartment. So I pull it out. I'm like, this isn't, you know, this is kind of, this is a bad day for me, but this is, uh, I think this is, he's like, oh, no, 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 it's good through January. You're still good. I'm like, okay, good. So I'll be right back. It's like 10 minutes, 15 minutes. What's going on? And after about the 12, 13 minute mark, I remember, oh yeah, the last time I registered the car, instead of giving me the little tab, they gave me a whole new license plate, which I have right here under my car, under my seat. <laughs> so he comes back and he's, uh, well, uh, you know, you're registered. I'm like, yeah, here, I have this license plate right here. I realized that license plate, oh, the registration is, is here. I didn't get off with warning. <laughs> but it dawned on me, you know, first of all, first of all, just as a metaphor, you ever driving in like Nebraska or Montana, you've been to Montana where they don't even have speed limits? I mean, you're driving and you get to go like 70, 80 miles an hour. In Michigan, in Michigan, if you're going 75, the semis are still passing you on these certain highways. And then you come to a spot where you have to go like 55 or 50, and it feels like you're not moving. Right? You've been driving fast for so long that all of a sudden it feels like you're not moving. When you're going 55 miles an hour, but it feels like you're not moving. That's what it can be like in life when we don't do the right things. It starts with like, well, you know, I'm just, just doing this. It's just, I'm just watching this a little bit. I'm just, do, you know, I just been talking like this a little bit, only with these people. And, and all of a sudden it gets to feel more normal. And if it doesn't get called into check more no- until it grows... And it feels normal to not do the right things. And it feels unnatural to go back and do the right things. So I was thinking, like, as I was driving back home that day, my son warned me about this (laughs) the day before. Dad, you should watch your speed. Son, son, son. I got a text yesterday from my dad, and it was a nice, encouraging text, kind of out of the blue. And then at the end of it, unrelated to the few sentences of encouragement, it said, be sure to slow down. (laughs) So I'm sure there's a lesson about speeding tickets. I know Wade Major would tell me that, since I've seen him at my wind, you know, right here a couple times. Um, I'm sure there's a lesson about that but maybe there's more that God's trying to communicate to me. Be sure to slow down. He might be saying it through his son. He might be saying it through my dad. He 
You might be saying it through a police officer. Be sure to slow down. Or you're going to get in trouble. There are different ways in which God interrupts our life. He interrupts our life. And the thing could be bad. It's not necessarily that God is sending this bad thing, but he could use it to communicate so we can see better. I remember when I, when I was at Third, I was at Third Church in Pella for many years, and my first thoughts of Third are like, this place is all, I mean, God did so many good things in my life. Everything about this place is, is perfect. It is a great church. There are great people there. But it is still a church, and they are still people, just like we're a church and we're people, so there are things that aren't great about it, just like every other church, just like our church. But at first, I couldn't see anything like that. And I thought, that's the center of the universe. That's the place where God most dwelt. And then when I stopped working there, it was really painful because I thought I was going to go work somewhere else in Chicago. I thought I was just about to get my ordination. Church in Chicago didn't work out. The ordination thing says, instead of four classes, you need 12 classes. Next thing I know, I'm leaving my family of four kids. One's a brand new baby, wife behind, and I'm in California. And all I could see at that time is, this is bad. And there was some things that were bad about it. But when my classmates are from Egypt and Nigeria and second-generation Korea and second-generation Chinese become my closest friends there, and when my professor's from Finland and another professor is from Sierra Leone, Africa, Pella didn't seem like the center of the universe anymore. I could see nothing wrong with Third or Pella. I could see ways that I had taken in a view that was totally not, not right until I got exposed. But it took getting interrupted for that to happen. And that can happen when we have a job loss, when we have financial issues, when we have a breakup. Those are be bad things. But God might use it to say, I want to help you see in a way that you can't. When we're going those, through those things, we could start to say, God, I just want to make sure I can see you clearly. Because the question to each of us today is, ultimately, do we want to be a child of God or a child of the devil? That is to say, do we want to resemble, do we want to look like Jesus we want to resemble or look like the devil? Well, for most of us, it could take some hard things to be able to see right and then choose right. But which do we want? So I'm going to have the worship team come back up as we pray and move into our last song. I'm not even sure what to pray yet, so I'm just going to be quiet for a little bit in case there's 
there's something, but I'll trust otherwise, that you can be praying on your own to the Lord. sense is that maybe for sure to me, maybe it would apply to some others in this room. That one of the things that God is saying today is that you can trust me. I can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus. Even when doing the right thing is unnatural, even when doing the right thing is hard. Even when you're going through the hard things and you can't see any good reasons for it, you can trust Jesus. So God, today we just acknowledge it is really hard to trust you a lot of the time. We've been hurt. We've been influenced. We've been patterned. We've practiced things that are not the right way. We're easily distracted. It is hard to trust you. But we want to be your children. We want to look like you. So we're asking for your help. Would you help us to trust you? And for any going through a particularly difficult time, would you somehow use the difficult time to bring about good? Would you use the difficulties we're going through to help us see more clearly? See you more clearly, see life more clearly, see what's right more clearly. And would you help it to feel natural, to do the right thing, to feel natural, to live for you? those that we love some of us that we love people dearly who have recently or are currently going through something really really difficult we want to trust you with these people we love so we're asking you bring about good out of this thing that was so bad bring about good for the people we love we trust you Jesus Trust you.